In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, over the past several weeks, we've considered what baptism is, what benefits it gives, and how water can do such great things. And tonight, we consider what baptism indicates. That is, what it reveals and shows forth, and the evidence of it in your life. So in order to see what baptism indicates and reveals, we go to Romans chapter 6. Now, right before this text, Paul was teaching that we clearly that we are justified by grace through faith alone in what Christ has done for us and not because of what we do. He taught that we are justified apart from our works, without works, and that we're justified solely on account of the obedience of Christ. That is what gets us into heaven. So that's the context. That's what he just said in chapter 5. Then comes chapter, uh, uh, now in chapter 6, Paul addresses a very specific false teaching, and it's called antinomianism. It's made up of two words, anti, against, or in place of, and nomos is Greek for for the law. So it is uh, a teaching that is against the law. And it's the false doctrine that goes like this. Well, since Jesus saves us apart from what we do, do and what we don't do since that doesn't matter therefore it doesn't matter what we do and don't do then we can live our life any way we want so god's grace and forgiveness is then turned into a license or a permission to sin and those who do this then will talk like this they'll say something like well jesus loves me he forgives me and then i'll just keep on singing sinning I won't change my life. Uh, I won't amend it. I won't change anything about myself. I won't repent. I just keep doing what I was doing before. Uh, And in fact, I'll just do whatever I want. The more that I sin, then the more Jesus forgives me. So that's the thought that's going around in people's minds. And so this is where chapter 6 comes in, in Romans. And it begins with these words, and this is what Paul says. He says, what then shall we say since we're saved by Uh, apart from our works by faith, should we persist in sin so that grace may abound? And then he says, may it never be. And the Greek phrase uh, here, may it never be, carries the weight of saying something like, no, uh, are you crazy? Far from it. God forbid it. God forbid such a thought. Uh, We don't uh, use the fact that Jesus saved us from our sins as a license to sin. So let me try to explain that with an analogy. Um, So imagine that you are in deep financial trouble uh, and you had no way to pay your bills and your home is about to be foreclosed. And imagine that it's all your fault. It's all because you racked up a ridiculous amount of credit, credit card debt from buying a bunch of useless things that you don't need, wasting money on drinks, uh, eating out at restaurants all the time and living a lifestyle that is well beyond your means. Uh, beyond your bank account. And now you're regretting your foolish ways and you have to find a way to pay back something like a million dollar debt or something of this nature. And if not, they're going to take everything you own and throw you in jail. Now imagine that someone saw that you were in need, that you couldn't pay this back and then gave you all of the money you needed to pay back that debt uh, and to wipe it clean. Now you know the right thing to do. Uh, But the foolish thing to do would be to not pay back the debt and to spend that money on other things, (laughs) other things that you want. In fact, another foolish thing, and more so this is what uh, I'm trying to get to, another foolish thing would be to pay back the debt you owe 
and then go the next day and spend more money and get yourself into the same debt you were once rescued from, to go back into the debt that you just paid back. Uh, In in fact, this is the exact reason why nearly 100% of people in poverty who win the lottery end up back in poverty just a few years later. It's because they didn't change. They took the money, they paid the debt, and then they got back into the debt, another debt, and they were wasteful and negligent and lazy and then foolish. So that's an analogy, and of course uh, it it fails in in some regards. But the the point is, is that this is what it's like to receive the forgiveness of sins from the Lord who loves you, who paid back every penny of righteousness that you owed the Father, every good work, who did it in your place, who gave you greater wealth than you could ever earn or work for. And then you go from that forgiveness of sins, that perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ poured upon you and credited to you as if you had done it. And then you run back to the same sins that you were saved from. When people use the forgiveness of sins as a license to keep on sinning, they are doing something even more foolish than the lottery winner who then gets back into an enormous debt. If someone paid all of your debt, why in the world would you deliberately go back into debt, another debt that you can't pay back? If Christ saves you from your sins, why in the world would you deliberately go back to those same sins? Wouldn't you rather use that forgiveness for good instead of evil? This is what St. Paul says next. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Then he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, So there's two points I want to point out here. Uh, The first is that Paul says something has happened, something changed about you in your baptism, and it's that you were buried with Christ. You weren't placed into the same tomb with Christ, but you became a sharer and a partaker of what Christ won in his tomb. And so your baptism is a means by which you are united with Jesus in death and in life. So baptism can't just be a symbol. The Bible says that baptism actually unites you with Jesus in a resurrection like his. That, in other words, your baptism is causing something. It's something in the future is going to happen because of your baptism. And the thing that's going to happen in the future is that you will resurrect for eternal life. That is, that is Romans 6. That's what the scriptures say, that that is the thing that is going to happen there on the last day. Now, the, the second point is this, is that baptism doesn't just affect the last day. It's not just something to, to push off to the very end, but it also affects today. It also affects right now, the moment you were baptized. It changes not only the future, but also the present. And that's why he says... <clears throat> That all of this happened in order that we might walk in newness of life. 
And it's not that baptism symbolizes a new life. Your baptism has caused a new life. It doesn't just signify a new start. It produces it, it begins it, and it exercises it. And the power to live a new life, the power to be a different person, does not come from your own willpower or your habits or whatever you do. The power to become a new person is in baptism, in the grace of God. And that is the newness of life. Now, uh, the, the question is, what is that newness of life? If there is a new life, then there must be an old life. And that's what Paul talks about then next. Okay, in these next verses, he says, We know that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then a few verses later, he says, You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this, dear saints, is what the Christian life in this world is. It is a lifelong, ongoing struggle between the old you and the new you. The sinful you and the holy and the forgiven you. The old man and the new man. When you were baptized, a war began inside of you between who you were without Jesus and who you are with Jesus. And so there's this lifelong conflict, this uneasiness, this tension, which you feel in the Christian life. As your life as a Christian, you feel this struggle inside of you between wanting to do the right thing and not being able to do it. Not wanting to do the wrong thing and falling out of weakness into it over and over again. Uh, it's, it's the new attitudes, the new behavior, the new thought, the new desires that the Lord has implanted in you and created in you versus the old ones that you were born with. And so this is what Paul writes in uh, Romans 7. He says, the, in the very next chapter, he says, I do not understand my own actions because I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. St. Paul calls this war a war waging in your flesh, that it is his flesh against his flesh. Now, I want to get to this final part in in Romans chapter 6 before I explain this a little more. Uh, Paul makes this final exhortation. He goes through all of this and then he says this, Therefore, because of this, because you were baptized into Christ's death and because you have a new life now, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Simply put, he says, that now that God has begun this new life in you, that he saved you and he, he has begun this new life in you, 
Don't go back to the sins from which he saved you. Jesus has forgiven and redeemed every part of your body. He redeemed your mind. So don't devote it to thinking of evil and filthy and wicked things. Rather, devote your mind to think of the things that are good, whatever is holy and true, and whatever is the word of God. Have the mind of Christ. Jesus redeemed your eyes. So don't fill your eyes with lust and greed and envy and covetousness. Look to, to others with love in your eyes and set your eyes on things above. Jesus redeemed your ears. So don't listen to or pay attention to gossip and slander or filthy talk and crude joking. Listen to what is good and true. Jesus redeemed your mouth. So don't fill it with lies and deceit and gossip and curses and slander. Rather pray and praise and give thanks and speak good and well of others. Jesus redeemed your hands, so don't devote them to anger and to rage and to violence or abuse or theft or laziness. Rather, help and support your neighbor in every physical need and work hard and do good to others. I want to give some advice here. I think that a lot of the Christian life, the new life, uh, this life of sanctification, is accomplished simply by outsmarting the old Adam in you. In other words, you need to prepare yourself for the fact that you're weak and you need to plan to make it difficult for your old self to gain the upper hand. And what I mean by this is that it is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist temptation. It's it's better to avoid it altogether than it is to resist it, to put yourself in its path. Now, uh, we can't ever get rid of all, all and every temptation. However, you should do everything in your power to limit your exposure to temptation and minimize the, the, the ways you're tempted. Uh, what I'm saying is that you shouldn't pray, lead us not into temptation, and then rush headlong into it or put yourself in positions like that. You should make it difficult for yourself to sin. And surround yourself with Christians who are trying to do the same. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So have you noticed that when you spend more time around family and friends and coworkers or watching shows and listening to music that curses, uses profanity, and uses God's name in vain, that you will do so also or it becomes easier to do or when you're around people who break the second commandment there's a greater chance that you will do it too let's consider this if you simply have one close friend who lacks self-control who is gluttonous shows no moderation when it comes to eating you have a 171 percent chance of eventually doing the same thing by filling yourself with more than you need. When you surround yourself with people who give themselves into drunkenness, then you are more likely to do the same. The odds of marital infidelity skyrockets when one of your close friends has been unfaithful in marriage. You are more likely to gossip when you're surrounded by those who gossip. 
You're more likely to be covetous and discontent and grumble and complain about this life when you surround yourself with people who do just that. You're more likely to fall away from the faith more when one of your family members has fallen away from the faith. Uh, Here's a a frightening and sobering statistic. Uh, If the family member who stops going to church is the father, the head of the home, then there is a 98% chance that the children will also reject the faith. That's only one in 50 of these children will remain Christians. That's just what it shows. 98% have fallen away because their own father did first. Now, this is important, uh, and this is kind of a a footnote here, but we oftentimes think that fathers don't influence or, or affect their children very much, that it's mostly the mother. But nothing could be further from the truth. Fathers have, in fact, a greater impact on the children's faith than any other person on this planet, any other person in the world, more than the pastor, more than the mother, more than friends, more than anyone else. It is the father who has this impact on his children. If he goes to church, there's a, a, a great chance that his children will remain then and follow and go to church too. Now, um, the point of all of this is to say that the people you spend your time with deeply influence who you are. And if you deliberately surround yourself with those who don't care about God's word, then don't be surprised when you don't either. And that's why the Bible exhorts us to avoid these sort of things, these sort of people and situations. The opposite is true. If you surround yourself with those who care about God's word, befriend them and care for them and imitate the good, then you will too. Surround yourself with those who are generous and your generosity will increase. Surround yourself with those who go to church each Sunday and you will do the same. Don't put yourself in the midst of temptation. Uh, Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. If you have trouble reading the Bible even, then put it in an obvious place where you cannot miss it. Put it on your pillow at night so you cannot go to sleep without it hitting your head somehow. If you get into trouble before, when you're bored and alone, then don't be alone. Avoid that situation. Be in public. You have to outsmart the old Adam. You know your own weaknesses and arrange your life in such a way that you make it difficult then to fall into these sins. Now, you you do all of this knowing that you can't escape the world. You are in this world, but you're not of it. And so you do everything in your power to not be conformed to the image of this world. So I want to close by saying this. uh, Remember that you're not to do any of these things to become holy. You do these things because you already are holy. You are holy in Christ. You're not making yourself a child of God. You have been made a child of God, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And so be what you already are in faith. Do holy and righteous things because you already are holy and righteous in the eyes of the Lord who loves you. When he looks at you, he does not see your sin. He has forgiven you. You you are forgiven by the same God who poured his blood out for you for every sin. And he forgives you and loves you day in and day out. And when the moment comes that you then fall back into the sin from which he rescued you from, 
when out of weakness you do the things you hate, the things that are harmful, don't try to fix it yourself. You remember your baptism. You remember what Jesus said there before you ever lifted a finger, before you ever thought anything. Remember that Jesus washed away your sin in a flood of his blood and that your salvation does not depend upon your obedience, but upon the obedience of Christ, even to death upon a cross. No matter how many times you fall into the same sins from which he saved you, he will save you again and again and again. And you cannot outsin God's grace and his baptism. You cannot uh, undo what he there has said. Return to him and cling to him and rejoice in his salvation. And when you fall and repent and trust that your dear Lord forgives you, he does. And know soon that the day is coming when Christ will end that struggle in you once for all. This pattern of repentance, this pattern of having to feel sorry, this pattern of, of turning to Christ and coming back and back to him again and again and again will one day end. It will be over and he will have you with him in his kingdom forever. So what does baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. And that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.